You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Anna Wells and Jeff Branke. We each have about 15 years covering the manufacturing industry. Each week, we take the five most popular stories on our website and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving us a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com. All right, let's get rolling. Anna, how are you doing this week? I am feeling a little sluggish. Yeah. I just ate a bunch of pizza, and then I kind of wish I had stopped earlier on the pizza. Agreed on both parts. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize how much of a difference pizza versus tacos last week would have been. But uh, Jeff, how are you feeling? I'm good. Yeah. Good. All right. The pizza is not slowing me down too much. Okay. Okay. Good to hear. Yeah, I can just feel, it feels like my feet are dragging me through the floor. But we're going to do a great job. <laughs> All right, our top story this week, and by top I mean our first story this week. Bezos wants to move heavy industry to space. Current richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, spent about 11 minutes in space on Tuesday. Now, he has a new proposition. He wants to take all heavy industry and move it into space. Bezos says his trip to space reinforced his commitment to climate change and the environment. The former Amazon CEO acknowledges that such a transition would take decades. And while he didn't specify exactly where in space these industries would go, like a space station or the moon, he's not, to have, he's not the first to have the or similar idea. As in February, DARPA announced a project called the Novel Orbital and Moon Manufacturing Materials and Mass Efficient Design. Basically, they wanted to explore the possibility of factories on the moon. Anna, what do you think when you think about factories on the moon? First of all, I like picturing uh, Jeff Bezos' coworkers, which he doesn't, I don't know, he doesn't have any anymore, right? But mm-hmm. um, just being like, oh, Jeff spends 11 minutes in space and now he thinks he knows everything about space. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, what an absolutely asinine, out of touch thing to say. I, you know, like, I'm 100% on board with climate solutions, as you know. But we were all in agreement, I think, in our office when this story broke that, like, this is unequivocally the, like, hardest possible way to do this. Yo, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> it's just, like, like this is the hardest, uh, the opposite of Occam's Razor. I, I kind of picture, like, a similar rich executive, like, 150 years ago being like, the ocean is so vast, we should start dumping our trash in there instead of burning it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Nothing bad will happen. Yeah, it definitely seems like a plot twist from Idiocracy. Yeah, I know. And like uh the this was like a lesser publicized statement I think than the one that everyone latched on to after his launch into space where he said that um you know he thanked Amazon's employees and customers because you paid for this. Mm-hmm. And of course, that really rubbed a lot of people a wrong way. But um I don't know. He, like he seems like he's pretty well groomed in dealing with the media just in past instances with him and he's been run Amazon for 20 years or mm-hmm. 21 years. Um, so I don't know, maybe he was just like a little space crazy. Like the, the press conference was described as giddy. Yeah. I think maybe he had like space brain. I don't, just, that's the only thing I can think of to explain away like any of these very strange comments that made very little sense. Like maybe he should have just gone to lunch (laughs) (laughs) instead of like sitting down in front of a panel of the media. Yeah. Slept on it. Uh, what do you think, Jeff? Was this just, uh, an adrenaline dump and, uh, he got caught with a hot mic? 
I think a little, it's a little bit of that, sure. But I think it's also the fact, I think a lot of these guys, and I would maybe throw Elon Musk into this category as well, they just get out of their lane. Mm-hmm. The guy's worth yeah. billions of dollars with a B. And I think it's very easy when you have that much success and you everything you've touched is sort of turned to gold. Yeah, you just feel like you are an expert on things that you are not an expert on. Mm-hmm. And the reality is if he did have this type of impact, okay, if he, if he saw this and he was out there and he's like, man, I have to do something from an environmental pollution control uh, perspective, he can look in his own backyard pretty quickly mm-hmm. to try to come up with solutions. Obviously, when we think of Amazon, it's obviously a huge logistics distribution company. They depend on a lot of vehicles to make these deliveries. So when we look at stuff from the Environmental Defense Fund on their site, they say that um, right now, even though delivery trucks and tractor trailers that distribute goods and cargo only make up about 4% of the vehicles on U.S. roads, they're responsible for nearly half of the nitrogen oxide emissions and nearly 60% of fine particulates from all vehicles. It's about 7% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the Mm -hmm. U.S., So Jeff, if you're really worried about it, instead of us trying to figure out how to take, you know, um, oil processing facilities and put them on the moon, why don't we look at Amazon's fleet of vehicles that they're using either directly or through third-party logistics providers and look more at electric vehicles, look at more hydrogen power, things like that. Mm -hmm. He could be a real driving force um, when we look at semis and even planes. When we look at planes, we look at cargo ships, they're also among the top or among the leaders in terms of uh, sources of increases in fossil fuel um, emissions. So there's a lot of stuff we can do in our own backyard. Mm -hmm. And he's in a logistics, a retail, a seller. He's got obviously a good pulse for things going on in our culture. When you look at how he's expanded Amazon into entertainment. Yeah. Stay there. Right. (laughs) Let's worry worry about, you know, um, developing space to maybe some other folks. Elon Musk is all about SpaceX because he's an idea guy. He is a futurist. He is he's done that. But we can also see why he tries not to deal with the SEC and other things because he's obviously out of his lane. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, Bezos can learn a little bit there. That's an interesting point. I do think uh, that he could make a much bigger impact if he looked at sort of logistical efficiencies that he has here. I did like... I did like the romantic nature of the statements where he got up there, he saw the little blue pearl and he was just like, or little blue marble and uh, was just like, Oh, it's tiny and precious and beautiful. And we should preserve this. It's like, I'm sorry that it took you that yeah, to, like, to see that for showing up. Yeah. Here. I, so it's uh, I mean, maybe if it did that good, it's something also, I mean, to be out of, uh, to be out of touch with the statement about thanking the employees and all the people that, you know, bought yeah. services. Why do we get so pissed at people that are the richest men alive based off of their idea that just, you know, crushed it? I mean, honestly, like, like of all the ideas, Amazon, truly unique. He created it. He's the world's richest man. And all of a sudden, everyone's angry with him. Well, he, he didn't create e-commerce, yeah. but he he's the first one who really made it work on this scale. So, mm-hmm. yes, he deserves all the credit in the world for that. Um, but, again, I, I think there is... When when you he does become worth that much, I think there's just this distance that grows between that and the reality of the everyday person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, if I was an Amazon worker making fifteen to twenty bucks an hour, and the guy who just went to space for eleven minutes on a billion dollar rocket said, "Hey man, thanks," yeah. yeah, I might feel a little salty about that too. So I'd feel appreciated. I'd be like, he's talking right to me. Right, yeah, I'm sure. I, I feel like the news cycle has not cooled sufficiently on like the Amazon drivers peeing in the bottles because they don't get breaks. Right. 
thing to be like <laughs> ignoring it. I don't know. No, you're right. That's a good point. If I was currently in a truck peeing in a bottle while I heard that statement, I'd right. be I'd be a little sour, a little sour. Um, you know, my other point was we have enough problems staffing these things on Earth. I mean, okay, yeah, let's let's say this is a real thing where we blast industry into the moon, right? Uh, so it would be sort of complete lights out manufacturing, and it's been explored before with the lunar arc concept that would you know have factories and other facilities underground. So people have thought about it before. It's not outlandish, and it while it does seem like an older, outdated sci-fi concept, I don't know. Uh, it just I struggle to think that. Instead of thinking that we can rein in industry, the only solution is, well, we're going to have to blast it to the moon to make it work. Mm-hmm. Well, I think where I struggled with it, too, is when you look at the biggest industries that are sources of pollution, just in the very nature of what they do, you're looking at, again, fossil fuel refineries, coal, oil, all of those places, as well as mining operations. Mm-hmm. Those are huge pollu- What are you going to do with those? Mm-hmm. Now, I understand every bit helps, but if you're making cars or computers or whatever, there are things that can be put in place to help control those emissions. In a lot of instances, they have. Right. Those heavy polluters, <laughs> there's not much you can – you can't send that to the moon, okay? You right. just – you can't. Yeah. So, I don't know. All right. Next most popular story this week. Workers strike at Frito-Lay plant. Members of the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers Local 218 went on strike at the Frito-Lay plant in Topeka, Kansas, over unreasonable working conditions. Union officials say the plant implemented forced overtime in 84-hour work weeks. Employees say that they would work seven days a week for up to 12 hours per shift, only to return to work eight hours later. Frito-Lay, the snack foods division of PepsiCo, took in $4.2 billion in sales last year. The company made the union an offer earlier this month, including a 60-hour work week, a 60-hour work week cap, and a 4% wage increase. Jeff, why wasn't that 4% enough to make them so happy? Well, it just feels like this is one of those situations where we've talked about manufacturing trying to evolve and position itself as a place that's not just a dirty, grimy job where you go and you can't go anyplace else because there's technologies, there's problem-solving needs here. We need a skilled workforce. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't treat your employees like the skilled workforce that they are, that you want them to be, you create negative work environments. Like it sounds what's going on here at Topeka. It sounds like this wasn't just about economics. This was about having a safer, more person-friendly place Mm -hmm. to work. There was a comment in an article from uh, the Topeka Capital Journal where a woman who had worked there for 26 years says, this was due for the last 25. Like this has been going on for a while. It just seems like a very pragmatic approach that was being put in place by the folks who are managing and operating this facility. And people are just fed up with it. They obviously don't want to be working 84 hours a week, mm-hmm. but more so one of the reasons they rejected the pay increase was because there was nothing about working conditions. There was no changes made there. Mm-hmm. Um, it is worth noting, it looks like there may be a tentative agreement that's in place. It hasn't been announced yet, yeah. but potentially by the time that we air, um, there could be something in place that put this to rest. And you would certainly hope that they've made accommodations in terms of safety, worker environment, in addition to capping it a week at 60 hours and, and stuff. So, Anna, it sounded like these workers were truly driven to their breaking point. Yeah. I, when I first read this story, I thought it was a misprint when I saw that their mandatory overtime amounted to 84-hour work weeks. That's outrageous. And mm-hmm. Jeff and I were chatting about this earlier this week. It's hard to fathom that these workers have been represented by a union, mm-hmm. considering how bad that is. Like, what has your union been doing for you? 
to this point that this was acceptable under the terms of your contract. I'm not understanding that at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, they're calling these suicide shifts, according to NPR, who also reported that workers claim the factory warehouse is 100 degrees or hotter on any given day Mm -hmm. in the summer. Like, they're asking for improvements here. They're asking for money. Pepsi is calling their claims, quote, grossly exaggerated. Meanwhile, the company beat estimates in the second quarter this week and posted $19.22 billion in revenue for a three-month period. Yeah, that's not bad. Probably information that's not comfort to these workers. So, yeah, as Jeff said, um, you know, potentially we'll hopefully see a resolution to this problem soon. But, um, you know, unfortunately, with the worker shortage, um, and we've talked about this before, workers have a lot of leverage right now. People will leave. I mean. Well, and you kind of wonder what it was like there because there's 850 people on staff. Only 500, not only, 500, 550 went on strike. So there was still 300 people working there. Now, if they're putting in 80-hour weeks before, oh, good night. What were those folks who didn't go on strike? Mm-hmm. What were they dealing with? Yes. And were they in a situation maybe economically? They just could not leave their job, right? Well, so. a, a lot of the press that I saw about the strike, they interviewed workers on the line, and they talked about the stress of being on the line on, uh, during the strike because you know, they lose that job security, but they think they're fighting for what's right. But it just adds to such a, a much more stressful day, and it really is a bummer that they had to go to that length in order to try and make any change. Mm-hmm. And now the new track, uh, the new contract uh, does address some of the employee's concerns. Like the sixth or seventh day of a work week will be guaranteed off unless the employee already has, unless the employee has already taken any form of time off in the work week. Now, this is what I thought was a little tricky is that if you refuse mandatory overtime, that is considered taking time off. So then it, takes out those protections of not having to work six or seven days in a row. And then these suicide shifts of 12-hour shifts with only eight-hour breaks in between them will end, but still maybe not 30 days, not until 30 days after the contract is signed. So it's like, we're going to get rid of it, still going to need you guys to hang in for a little bit. Well, and how do you recruit people to come here? Okay, so yeah. let's say let's say they they lose a hundred employees from this because there's bad press. These folks went on strike. They're like, I'm out of here. I am not going back to this facility. How do you have? How can you go out to the community and recruit people to mm-hmm. come back in here when you've gotten all of this? Good grief! If they're calling it a suicide, I yeah. Mean, uh, well, that's because workers have committed suicide, and they while it can't be attributed directly to the workday, but that's kind of where part of that came from was that workers were taking their own lives. And it, I mean, it's so kind of out there a little bit too. And you think about working for a company like Frito Lay, like that should resonate some like positive feelings. Like you're making a product that people go to for re- like relaxation and when they're having fun and, and in a place where they're you know watching a ball game or chilling out with friends or whatever, having a snack. I mean, to then have this sort of piled on there, that's tough. I mean, I don't know, yeah. just from a a product marketing standpoint. I mean, that's, right. geez. Well, and I understand getting stuck in that that sort of like vicious cycle of when you know man, uh, overtime is vol- voluntary, overtime is offered, and it's time and a half, and then they're kind of bidding you up to maybe you can do double time, and maybe you get double time plus you get another day off, and it's like they keep bidding these workers up, and the workers keep pushing themselves beyond what they are physically capable of, and then they're never really thinking – it's so short-sighted that they're not thinking about their potential breaking point. And that's where, just because I've been caught in those situations mm-hmm. before, where you're just like, oh, 
I mean, I'm already working Saturday. I think I could do a half day on Sunday because it's double time. And honestly, between Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to wind up making more than I did the five days prior. And you really just wind up in this tricky situation where no one's making the best choice for anybody. Mm -hmm. It's very frustrating. Um, All right. Our next most popular story this week, a three robot pileup leads to a warehouse fire. Okado Technology is a division of UK-based Okado, a developer of software, robotics, and automation systems for online grocery stores. Okado's smart platform uses a combination of artificial intelligence, high-speed wireless communication, and robotics to fill orders. The company says it can fill a 50-item order in minutes. Well, last week, some of the company's robots in a London warehouse got their signals crossed and caused a three-bot pileup. The crash caused a fire that took nearly 100 firefighters to get under, to get under control. The facility's 800 workers were safely evacuated. The robots, reportedly, did not fare as well. The location has 3,500 robots that process as many as 150,000 orders per week. The company hasn't explained what caused the crash, but in 2019, a robot charging station malfunctioned and caused another fire that burned down an entire building, costing the company $138 million. Jeff. That is a costly robot pileup. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And this company is all in on this technology. They started as basically an e-commerce platform for grocery delivery, mm-hmm. and they've expanded into robotics and distribution and the warehousing and everything that you have to see set up there. And it could be used for other applications other than just um, grocery delivery. But when you look at these two, I would call them very significant incidents mm-hmm. yeah. within a two-year span, it does make you think a little bit about those who are really pushing this technology forward. Um, they call these places hives. And if you saw the video, oh, it yeah. does. It looks like bees in a hive. They are just buzzing all over the place and moving. So when one of these things does crash, it doesn't surprise me that there was a fire. It's not surprising with 3,500 robots in a facility that something shorted out on a charger and also started another fire. So at what point are you being blindly pushing this technology forward as opposed to understanding, hey, we may need to scale this back a little bit. Mm -hmm. There are tons of benefits in terms of robotic automation and improving time and efficiency, maybe making this company much more profitable and probably helping their customers see things more quickly. But Mm -hmm. it did start a couple big fires. So there's definitely something that needs to be weighed there in terms of where's the bigger benefit. Right. I just, Anna, when I read and saw the story, I just couldn't help but think this is the cost of progress. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there. I don't see this as being like a major deterrent to automation investments, which are accelerating precipitously right now. Um, it, I, you know, it was like such a, a big publicized story and it's so strange and mm-hmm. the monetary obviously yeah. impact there was so, you know, it's just shocking. But um, I think sometimes these stories get overblown and they become fodder for discussions about reining in the technology. But this applies to a picking application, which is a perfect fit for automation. It has been for years. And if you look at the way the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of robotics, namely in industries like outside of automotive, finally, um, I don't think that this deters anything. I mean, warehouses are growing at a breakneck pace because of e-commerce. I don't think that um, what's going on with e-commerce is re- reversible, mm-hmm. really. Not to mention these worker shortages, which are like accelerating this trend that's already been occurring. So I think there's just too much pressure on warehouses right now um, for this to really have like an impact on people's decision making. Um, I think we're going to see more digital transformation in the coming years. 
um, regardless of these kind of one-off stories. But I, I agree with you, Jeff, that it, you do need to do it in an intelligent way. And sometimes just adding automation for, you know, more and more and more. Well, I think the argue, in my opinion, what, what we're looking at is more the scalability. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying get away from robots and automation. I'm saying 3,500 might be too many Yeah, mm -hmm. in, in that type of perspective, mm -hmm. especially if you're having these types of incidents, which again, this is like you said, it's one. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, so it's different. But I do think as we do get into this age where we're continuing to push a lot of these technologies and automate more, and like you said, the pandemic has forced manufacturers to look very hard at their infrastructure and re-examine their automation technology investment strategies. You know, they're looking at more of these things and the, the worker shortage feeds into that exponentially. I mean, that, how can you not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I just hope manufacturing globally here in the U.S., everywhere, looks at the scale. Let's mm -hmm. make sure we're doing it at the right speed, the right size, not just throwing a bunch of stuff out there and just feeling because we made these investments, we're going to see all these huge returns because that can lead to poor implementation procedures and potentially issues like this. Well, I mean, 3,500 bots, but there were still 800 employees there. I mean, True. Uh, yeah. and uh, to look at that video, and I know that it's just two very large publicized crashes in the last two years. I can't imagine how many fender benders are happening there. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I did think of your wife when yeah. I wrote the script up because I had to mention that there were definitely some bugs. Oh, man. Yeah. It was a very, uh, I mean, it was a pun filled uh, script that you wrote for I this one. I couldn't do as well as Carrie would have. Yeah, no, yeah. but uh, it was, I mean, you did well. I couldn't have the spirit of the puns in this write up, otherwise, I really would have gone in. But, uh, <laughs> with the hive fun. Uh, but for me, this reminded me of a lot of the autonomous car technology that we've been seeing, yeah. where we know it's what's going to happen going forward. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of uh, incidents, and it just, uh, it's not going to stop. No. It's not Have you stop. guys used any of these services, like online grocery buying? I haven't, no. because But I've only heard negative things about them, like, yeah. uh, especially when, when it comes to produce. Like having, well, like, what do you mean online grocery buying? Like, Going on, like going to one of these places, having them like I know our local grocery store, like pick and save. Oh. you can go on their site and they'll shop for you and yeah, bring it. I've done it. You've yeah. done it. Mm -hmm. Has it worked out okay? Or it does, um, except for the produce that you, they pick out for you is definitely like produce you would pick out for a stranger. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like not anything that you would choose yourself. You get the ugly produce for sure, or like yeah. the lettuce that you're like, mm, this has like one more day. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, when you're in the store shopping, or I mean, I miss I'm one of the last ones still in the short store shopping. When you see those people filling those orders, mm -hmm. they care just as much as you think they care. Yeah. it's just like one of these. One of those. And that's, I mean, there's not much more science. No, it's a, it's not an easy job. See, I actually like going grocery shopping, especially now, like things oh, are yeah. cooled down a little bit. It's yeah. not masking up and everything is, you know, yeah. less, fewer safety concerns. I like doing it. I so. kind of missed it during like the heavy part of the pandemic. I just, you know, never went and I was like, man, what, you know, you like dream of what you're, you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, man, I can't wait to pick up my own apples. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. No bruises on those. <laughs> It's uh, I do a lot of meal planning when I shop, yeah. and uh, when I look at Instacart or something like that, and it, you know, it's basically like when you order food online, and it's like, do you just want the last order again? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's so easy to just be like, yeah, just give me one of everything I got last time before. And uh, every once in a while, you know, you're headed down that aisle, and you're like, you know what? Maybe I will try cooking something with coconut this week. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing about it, though. You like I found that we were actually saving money on groceries oh, because mm -hmm. you are very deliberate with what you're choosing. 
Yeah. Um, it's harder to like click add to cart than to like grab a bag of Doritos. I yeah. think I don't know why. Oh, well, I know man. our target bill definitely went down. Yeah. We were doing yeah. pickup in. Uh, yeah. But the bag of Doritos is your reward for you going. Know, for going, it's like it's that last aisle. You're like, you know what? I've done well here. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna get two, and then one for the wife. Yeah, I'm gonna get the kind the that nobody else likes. Yeah, yeah, like a personal fruit pie. Oh, pass. <laughs> Oh. He just shuddered. Yeah. No, thank you. Our next most popular story this week stays with food. McCormick seeks director of taco relations. Spice maker McCormick, which dates back to 1889, recently announced a new job at the company, director of taco relations. The short-term position will pay $25,000 a month for four months for what is mostly remote work about 20 hours a week. The company is a main player in the taco seasoning market and wants to hire a consultant to, quote, work with the McCormick Kitchens team to develop innovative and delish taco recipes, travel across the country in search of the latest taco trends, dialogue with other like-minded taco connoisseurs across social media, and be on the latest street taco season be in on the latest street taco seasoning mixes developed by the McCormick McCormick Innovation Lab. Ugh. Oh, you went full on Gen Z. Yeah, no. Delish. It's uh I mean, this job sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. It's great marketing, but who they're cornering with this description. I just when I read the description I know I knew, well that's not me. <laughs> Because let's, I'm let's, never going to say delish. Let's dialogue about this story, mm-hmm. shall we? Mm-hmm. Let's have a dialogue. Um, Anna, what did you think about McCormick's efforts to uh, create a new executive position? I loved it, actually. Um, I, you know, it's pretty basic viral marketing here. But in the food industry, like many people tend to be brand loyal to Vic, a very specific couple of products. And then the rest you kind of, I don't know decide on the on the fly maybe Mm -hmm. Uh, like so i read that brand loyalty among grocery shoppers took a hit during the pandemic and that was due to like pervasive shortages and panic buying so now more than ever companies like mccormick really need to give themselves some personality i think Mm -hmm. um this company's been around since the late 1800s it's a really great way to encourage consumers to be brand loyal on something like seasoning which is sort of an afterthought i think and you disagree well yeah, no, maybe, like, but like it's very easy to pick up like five other brands that are, are possibly cheaper and maybe indistinguishable. I know that you're for some reason very specifically loyal to McCormick. Oh, because, I too. Yeah, because yeah, I've tried all other taco seasonings. Who should be, or like, you know what, who needs a director of taco relations? El Paso. Like, They're really uh, like, dr- dragon. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there are plenty of companies out there that are just not even sniffing what McCormick's coming <laughs> up with in the seasonings game. I mean, Jeff, it sounds like no, you I agree. agree. Yeah. yeah. No, what were you going to say? Uh, go ahead. I mean, are you uh, tossing the seasoning on your black beans that you got? Absolutely. McCormick's mm. chili. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. McCormick's chili. Chili seasoning. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. I just, yeah. I could, actually, McCormick's was weird because they were one of the brands it was tough to find. Yeah. Different stuff. Really? I don't know. Yeah. So I thought this was pretty cool too. Pretty cool story. I mean, it pays well. hundred yeah. grand. I know. Um, good paying job. If you had to guess, did Americans eat more or less than 4 billion tacos last year? <laughs> more or less. Personally, less, but by a hair. 
Americans ate over 4.5 billion tacos last year. Whoa. That's so, a lot of tacos. You know, McCormick's wants to get a piece of that taco pie. <laughs> it has it. It has it. Like, But I was surprised how there's a lack of information in terms of taco seasoning market share out there. <laughs> Were you really? Did, wow. some, did some research. Did I you? did some digging, and even the big ones like Grandview just said, <laughs> seasoning, which includes tacos. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's not really what I'm looking for. They're like, 404, get out of here. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting, too. We ran another story this week about Taco Bell. Potentially, mm-hmm. they didn't go into detail as to far as which stuff they were going to be potentially running out of, but they were worried about shortages and p- maybe pulling stuff off their menu. I mean, the place is called Taco Bell, so maybe hopefully tacos don't take a hit there. But yeah, maybe it's with more people cooking stuff at home, tacos are a pretty easy thing to do. I mean, maybe it's just mm-hmm. one of those things that's uh, a little bit pandemic related, you know, in terms well, of getting yeah. more attention right now. Yeah. Know. Well, and I liked the wording of the um, job post, too, because they talked about like McCormick's test kitchens and working on innovative recipes. And I thought it was just like a good way to modernize this brand that's been around forever mm-hmm. and and give it some sort of make uh, it hip, make it hip mm-hmm. and um, personalize it. And make it was it, just, it was sort of a timely move, I thought. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. You know what? We need to get the kids talking about McCormick. I I know I I uh, I completely understand and it gave him a lot of press. You know, it's a lot better than that uh, millennial word of mouth. Like, you know what seasoning's just been really banging for me lately? McCormick. I'm gonna put it on my social media. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna take it to social. Uh, I was interested to see of the limited data I found out there. The seasoning market was valued at 15.44 billion in 2020, and I mean, that's a lot of salt. This and it's, guy. It's forecasted to reach twenty two point four six billion in twenty twenty. Hey, you're talking to the wrong guy. I buy a ton of this stuff too. Like I'm particular on the celery salt, the garlic salt, celery all that salt. stuff. Oh, oh yeah. man, I am not here for your seasonings forecast. No. Let's talk more about this. Yeah. See, this is that we're gonna have a seasoning section. That's that podcast. taco pie that uh Jeff was mentioning earlier. That's what McCormick's looking for a bigger chunk of. <laughs> it wants this twenty two point four six billion. Um Let's move on. Let's Aww. move on. Yeah. Do we have to? Actually, I'll talk about tacos all day. Perfect. Yeah. Hard shell, soft shell? Both. Right. Yeah. No, it's uh, with the kids now, more soft shell. Yeah. But uh, I, I could, uh, we could do tacos every day in my house. In 2019, that's not the date. Next most popular story, our top story this week, beefed up inspections after horrific fair ride accident. In 2017, an accident on a carnival ride at the Ohio State Fair killed 18-year-old Tyler Jarrell, and left four others with life-changing injuries. A corroded steel arm snapped on the fireball ride, and the passengers were thrown from it. The maker of the spinning, swinging ride said years of undetected excessive internal corrosion caused a carriage holding four riders to break apart just hours after final inspection. The incident caused the state to tighten amusement ride oversight. Inspectors are conducting more more checks for rust and metal fatigue and flagging more rides for repairs. The inspections have caused some carnival operators to accuse inspectors of overreach and shutting down rides over small issues. Attorneys for the victims blamed the inspectors for missing obvious warning signs and also blamed the ride's operator and manufacturer. No one was charged, and while Ohio gives ride inspectors immunity from negligence... Two private inspection companies reached settlements with the family, and another lawsuit has targeted the manufacturer and is still in court. Ohio lawmakers have since created Tyler's Law, which requires more mandatory inspections for big attractions and makes owners maintain repair and travel records. 
However, Anna, nine states still don't require any government scrutiny of these rides. And I found that troubling. Uh, Very. I mean, Ohio is described as having a more robust inspection program than most states. And here we have this horrifying case where corrosion, um, which we also saw in the seaside condo collapse, this issue that was here hard to see, they're saying, um, caused this catastrophic accident. And I don't know. These rides are being taken apart, transported, rebuilt, potentially like a dozen or more times in a month. And places like Texas, where, you know, that they tend to kind of lag on the regulatory side, Mm -hmm. um, they only require these rides to be inspected once a year, which to me just does not feel like enough. We talk about how this year might be one for the books when it comes to safety incidents um, amongst, you know, any industry, right? Because businesses are running more shifts. They're working faster. The skilled workforce is in a rebuilding year, I guess we could call it. Um, There's lots of new staff everywhere. Um, If training is rushed, there is going to be some oversights. And, you know, look at a line from the story. Uh, It said amusement operators say they especially can't afford to have their rides grounded for repairs that they don't believe are warranted coming after a year where they were shut down because of the pandemic. So to me, this says we're going to do our best and push forward because we need to address a 2020 deficit. Mm -hmm. And that's not making me feel warm and fuzzy about these kinds of rides and their safety protocols no especially when these rides were sitting idle for a year Mm -hmm. and i mean we certainly know that like when you shut down equipment and you turn it on a year later jeff it doesn't always always work as it did when you turned it off no you know i i started reading this story and at first there's that that remorse that little bit of of heartbreak you know the fact that this was a teenage kid who had just signed up to serve in the marine corps Mm -hmm. who who was killed on this ride and from there, it just, it really, my blood started boiling the more I, I read this one. The one quote that got to me, um, some carnival operators say inspectors are overreaching and shutting rides over issues that aren't immediate safety concerns. Mm-hmm. When my kid is on a swing mm-hmm. flying through the air, I don't want there to be immediate, distant, far-term, short-term, doesn't matter. There should be zero mm-hmm. safety concerns. A few have pulled out of Ohio's festival circuit or are considering it because they say, because of what they say is uncertainty over how the rules are being enforced. My response to that is good riddance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous for these ride operators. We all had a tough 220, 2020. I'm sorry for that for your business, but that does not give you a pass on being safe and making sure people don't get hurt mm-hmm. or worse. Mm-hmm. So for all of these regulations being beefed up, good. They need to. And it's terrible that it took something to this extent to shed more light on this. And that's always the case. So if this is a situation where we can be more proactive and going after people who are cutting corners and not quite sure. And let's be real. We've always been to these places. They don't have certified, you know, electrical um, engineers putting these things together. Okay, Mm. these are not mechanical engineers. These are not high quality maintenance individuals always focused on here. In some cases there are. But by and large. These types of tests are going to make sure that regardless of who's putting the ride together and operating it, it's done right and it's safe. Yeah. So I'm all for it. No, it's a, it, it is really unfortunate because I thought of all the times that, you know, we would go to state fair or other um, festivals and you'd almost, it was almost a joke about how rickety the ride mm-hmm. seemed. But regardless of how rickety it seemed, you always trusted it was safe because like to your point, Jeff, like you were a child or an adolescent on it and you're yeah. just like, 
I mean, they wouldn't steer me wrong. Grew up in a small town, so we had a lot of volunteer fire department like picnics and festivals. So they'd have, you know, the tilt a roll and stuff like that. And you're like, well, the Iron Ridge Fire Department isn't going to let me get on an unsafe Mm -hmm. ride, right? Yeah. But then you read some of this stuff in terms of it wasn't them that was even checking it out. It's entrusting these these entertainment uh, businesses that they've hired to set it up. And if they were testing it once a year, the first place they went to, Man, that is scary, especially yeah. in retrospect. Honor system. Well, it is. They did say that they have a zero tolerance for rust. And so I I at least understand some of the complaints if it's just uh, exterior rust that isn't on anything, any critical part. But again, uh, if, the, if they have a zero tolerance for rust, you got to get it out before the ride goes goes anywhere in the state. Uh, the Ohio's agriculture. Uh, agri- uh, This department in Ohio, Ohio's Agricultural Department, which oversees ride inspections, says it will have a history that comes with each ride, which I found pretty cool because whether or not it's a kid's ride or a roller coaster, it's going to have sort of the traditional log that you would expect in a maintenance facility showing all the maintenance that happened uh, with each machine, when things broke down, how it was repaired. You know that it's going to be traceable. And the new law emphasizes checking a ride's structural components and that inspectors are told to err on the side of caution. Again, that was another thing I read, and I was like, good. It's err. They're erring. Okay. They got to err. Keep going, bud. Caution. And uh, finally, the carnival owners must work with ride manufacturers or a certified engineer when repairs are needed to have them sign off on the work, a process that's more expensive and helps keep rides out of commission longer, resulting in lost revenue. That was the one I was curious about, Anna. Do you think that's true, that they'll wind up losing less revenue because they'll do it right, and thus the rides will last longer? I mean, there's something to be said for that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what most uh, you know industrial facilities look at, or you know the ones that are doing it right, is just keep up with those PMs, and you do them every year, and you got equipment to last you much, much longer. Yeah. Well, Why I mean, is it so much different? Look for around industry? your house or your, my car. Yeah. Get a rust spot on the you know the underhood area. You can get some WD forty. You get some stuff. You take care of it. and You paint over. I mean, yeah, that's you err on the side of caution. Yes, you do because that's exactly how you say it. How do you say? It? Do you say err? That's how yes. everybody says it. No, you err. You guys are erring right now. You're getting high pitched. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to get high pitched. Uh, no, but uh, so if s- such man- maintenance practices were beneficial in the manufacturing industry why is it something that hasn't been adopted for this industry previously is it just that the margins are that slim yeah the mar they want to make more money yeah let's be real plus it's not as professional staff yeah i mean they're not you've described carnies in every way except calling them that just like uh the staff in charge of running it all right yeah no but i got some good i need to be more more blatant sometimes all right I'll see what I can do. I don't want to take that away from you. That's kind of your role here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm the uh, blunt object. All right. (laughs) Let's move on to In Case You Missed It. Stories that were not as popular on the websites, but, you know, still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. All right. Anna, what was your In Case You Missed It this week? Okay. So um, Amazon is pushing landlords around the country, sometimes with financial incentives, to give its drivers the ability to unlock apartment building doors themselves with a mobile device. The idea being that it cuts down on stolen packages. Privacy experts say that any device connected to the internet could be hacked, including the Amazon one, and that bad actors could try to unlock the doors. I am curious what you guys think about this. I, I'm, 
like you know i don't know my first thought here is like you know you know yeah my first thought here is like no way um i'm curious what building tenants think about this and if they're able to weigh in for example if like part of the selling point of renting or whatever buying a condo a particular place is that has a secure and like locked entry Mm -hmm. can the landlord just start providing access to whoever they want I don't know if like if that's part of your contract or whatever or like I mean I don't know but then is the landlord and other tenants in the building they're already doing that yeah like contractors probably and their friends and who knows who all has access to that keypad I guess but um, I guess either way Amazon is employing like more and more third-party contract drivers they say they're doing background checks on these delivery people and i'm sure that so many of them are great people um but i i don't think i'm comfortable with the idea of doing of doing that that's not no that's not for me no no i don't like it either uh that's it's too far it's one thing to like leave it in the entranceway of the apartment building or something Mm -hmm. like that it's another thing to go into my dwelling i i do not like that at all yeah. yeah, and like the the most payback here is for Amazon because they when a package gets stolen, I think that right now their policy yeah. is that they try to no work, more work with porch you. pirates, right? Yeah, work with you mm-hmm. on on it, um, and so that would probably save them some money if it wasn't happening. Um, what's what's in it for the consumer? I mean, obviously yeah. they're more likely to get their package, but. I think that it's something that could be important, particularly as people are buying more and more high-end items on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So like if I'm just uh, re-upping on paper towel or it's a book or it's other media, something like that, I really don't mind if it's sitting on the porch. But I mean, let's just say that I happen to buy like $1,000 in softball bats and that's going to be sitting on my porch for, um, I mean, a little less than that, but that's going to be sitting on my porch for the better part of a day. I guess maybe I don't mind if they can put it in a more secure location, I don't know. That's a slippery slope. You're though. giving it, Amazon it, a key to your house? Like, no, it sounds like it's all going to be electric. So it'll just be an app. Right. but <laughs> So nothing bad can happen there. Right. No, nah, they just got to deal with the dog. That's going to be bad. No. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like, and I know they don't work for every whip. There, you can also track the package. You know when it's coming. There's potentially workarounds yeah. there to, to, to try to, to um, prevent something from being stolen. Yeah, giving somebody an electronic key. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. But maybe if we're talking about our individual house, right? But like when you think about apartment complex, at least when I think of the even the better apartments that I've lived with or lived in, man, they're just like you said, there's so many other people kind of coming and going in those mm-hmm. places that I mean, Amazon having a key is probably going to be one of the more secure people coming in and out of that building. Why do you think that? Well, because I've seen the nefarious characters going into these where other apartments. You, where yeah. were you living? I was living on the east side, on the south side. I was everywhere, man. <laughs> <laughs> No, and it's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think an apartment complex is different than your dwelling. Uh, and I don't know. This isn't completely out of base. Like, I know that uh, doesn't U.S., uh, the Postal Service, have, like, special keys to deliver packages at um But they apartment. drop it off in the entranceway, not your, not your actual apartment. But they also, like, some apartments have specific drop boxes, like. Um, for, for the, the U.S. Postal Service? Yeah. So you're saying you're, you're cool with this. You're okay with Amazon coming into your house, apartment, whatever. Not house, but I'm saying if they were coming into an apartment, like, so is this saying they're coming into your specific apartment or just the building? No, in the building. building. In the building. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm fine with them coming in the building. 
You know, uh, when we all have to create some sort of Amazon-protected kiosk at the front of our house to make sure there's no porch piracy and they don't come in the entrance, I guess that'll be the the true solution. But when it's an apartment, I understand letting them in a little bit easier than if it was a house. Okay, I can can meet you there. Would you give an Uber driver a key to your house so they could come in into your room, tap you on the shoulder, and get you out of bed so you're not late for your flight. That actually would probably help. Yeah, out he a lot. would take that. Yeah, I feel like yeah. he would. And I mean, I've had uh, some Uber drivers have helped me into the home before. That <laughs> <laughs> just uh, five star rating on that one. Five star rating. Uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? Um, I looked at our one of our sister sites, Cannabis Equipment News, and ra- they ran a story called Stolen Water Sustains Illegal Marijuana Crops. So in particular, they're looking out in California. There's obviously a drought going on, very dry. So what is happening with a lot of these black market cannabis farms is they're doing all sorts of stuff to get water in the midst of this drought. Mm-hmm. According to this story, um, they're going to use a lot of their um, stealing water from tapping fire hydrants. Mm-hmm going into underground pipes or breaking into water storage facilities or even backing water trucks directly up to lakes and waters, taking it out to their illegal farm and taking care of their plants. Now, a couple different problems here. Um, first of all, it's an illegal product that they're helping prosper. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. That, that helps. That hurts all of the legal cannabis growers, mm-hmm. uh, creates a problem there. It's also taking water supplies away from legitimate agricultural endeavors. Um, and the other part is they're taking it out into the desert. Mm-hmm. So it's making it even more difficult to sort of police these black market cannabis farmers because they're so remote and they're doing all this crazy stuff to get water out to their uh, their crops. I thought it was just interesting on a couple of levels. Number one, the extent that these folks are going to. I mean, right. backing up to a lake and filling up a water truck, that is, that's showing some initiative. Okay? Yeah. I mean, that's, and it, that's it, impressive. It's got to be remote too. Like, uh, doesn't somebody notice that? Just like... Put the truck with a giant hose in the lake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other thing was, wasn't it? Didn't you have a story a couple of weeks ago where uh, the same thing was happening in Mexico and it caused a lot of structural problems because they were tapping into the oil supply? uh, Aquifer. Aquifer. Underneath the city. Yeah. And it was, yeah. Mexico City's got lots of issues. But that was my point is that when we were talking about that story, we were just like, whoa, in Mexico though, right? And now this story came up and it's like, Oh yeah, here too. Well, this isn't creating structural issues for any of these these local communities, but mm-hmm. economically, yeah, it's it's kind of a cluster. Well, and in terms of like you know illegally tapping into a you know precious resource, yeah. it's uh, I don't know. This is a this is could cause big problems. I could see. No, absolutely. Again, taking away from legitimate, mm-hmm. feeding illegal operations, and makes it. I mean, because these guys are so remote where they're doing this, it's tough to police. And the other thing that's part of it is. <laughs> because growing illegal marijuana and stealing water are not considered real high-profile crimes, mm-hmm. the police are kind of like, man, we got bigger things to deal with right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these legitimate businesses are like, what are, are kind of throwing their hands up? Like, we know what they're doing. It's not getting enough attention, and it's really hard to spot. So, yeah. no, it's hurting a lot of them. The, well, there's uh, a really massive drought out there too. Like, yeah. shouldn't that matter? Not. Yeah, it's a big part of it. Yes. Yes, Anna. That should matter. Shouldn't it matter? That should matter. Um, all right. My in case you missed it this week. Crocs sues over blatant knockoffs. Crocs made one point billion dollars in 2020. It was the company's best year on record. They sold 69 million pairs last year. The shoe was inspired 
has inspired a lot of knockoffs, and Crocs recently sued multiple retailers like Walmart and Hobby Lobby for infringing upon the company's trademark. The biggest issue is are the 3D marks, or the holes that are in the front of the shoe. While Crocs sell for about $50 a pair, Walmart's nearly identical version sells for about $10. So my first question was people were paying $50 a pair for Crocs? My God. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, the birth of the croc is the origin story for the human race's fate in Wally, where people no longer walk and just float places on levitating surfboards, because we're headed there next. And the other thing I was thinking about was, will sales be helped by new hybrid approaches to work or working from home? I mean, I understand. It makes so much sense in the world to me that 2020 would be their banner year. But that has to be the high watermark, right? For Crocs? For Crocs, Oh, yeah. you think because enough people are back within civilization now that Crocs are going to... Yeah. I mean, because the last year and a half, we've been a waste-up society, you know? <laughs> That's well put. Yeah. I, like I think... Uh, I, I just don't see it being as, uh, as huge for them next year. Maybe not. I don't know. I bought three pairs of Crocs last year, so I'm part of that 69 million, but they were for my children. Oh. I want to clarify that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Like for kids, like they're really easy to get them for them to get them on. They don't have to tie them. Yeah. Uh, there's no like trying to jam your foot and then get put your finger behind the heel and r- yeah. none of that That's stuff. That's a rite of passage. Me dislocating my son's pinky toe. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, you should have led with that. They're not for you. They were not for me. Um, but I did buy them. Um, so I I get the appeal, but like not as a not personally. Did you buy Crocs or be honest, was it the $10 version from a Hobby Lobby? No, I bought actual Crocs and they were already like, it took them like three weeks to arrive. This was, Mm -hmm. I don't know, last spring maybe um, because they were already so delayed at that point. So they were busy last year. Yeah. We had some comments on the website about people stressing losing shelf space to the Walmart knockoffs. And that's why you can't find Crocs. I'm just like, buddy, you got bigger issues. (laughs) Jeff, your thoughts on the croc phenomenon and its implications on the human race going forward. <laughs> I cannot speak to crocs. I've never owned a pair, never bought a pair mm. for me or my children. So not an authority there, but it does speak to sort of a bigger picture issue mm-hmm. when you've got these cheaper, I'm not going to get into the legality if they're knockoffs or not, but cheaper options that are being placed on the shelves of a place like Walmart. I mean, mm-hmm. Walmart for a while anyway was trying to tout itself from a you know Americana perspective, wrapping itself in the flag, hometown, all that kind of stuff. Well, they kind of had a chance here, and if they're sourcing something based solely on price, not caring so much where it's made, um, you know, they're kind of being hypocritical there, obviously. Um, and it is unfortunate that it comes to a legal battle like this to try to sort out something for places Hobby Lobby too. I mean, get a lot of traffic, a lot of people going through there. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's them just being more transparent with their their vendors. And I guess I guess this just shows that we all need to be a little bit more open-minded when it comes to footwear. Is that a pun? What? Is it? <laughs> all right. I think that we have a comment from somebody that's watching us live. And it's from a familiar person. It's my wife that says, David and I always, can you flip it around? (laughs) Always argue about the pronunciation of er, but dictionary.com is 
unfortunately on his side, which I hate. And I love you for saying that, honey. Carrie, could Dictionary. you not have kept that for home? I'm Did glad you she to... didn't keep that for home. Also, I mean, uh, it's really cool that we're, we have started streaming the show live. So it's a good note to our readers that or viewers that we probably should have said at the beginning that uh, if they want to comment during the uh, the broadcast, they certainly can on YouTube. Yeah, it's too late now, though. Yeah, but no, uh, again, thanks to Carrie Manti for the one time, the one time that uh, I pronounced something right coming to my back. I appreciate it. And yeah, we argued about that a lot. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to our final thoughts. Uh, Anna, what's your final thought this week? Well, just chatting today about um, taco seasoning got me thinking what my favorite food is um, that's sold in an envelope. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's lemonade. <laughs> Uh, just so you guys know it wow it made you think about like um, i was just like thinking like oh it's so satisfying to rip that envelope open but not always you know like actually also the the mac and cheese powder like Mm. when you tear that open and you get the little poof of uh Mm -hmm. cheese dust and i knew that i teased it last week but the taste test is up and uh make sure you check that out on our websites because we had some uh Graphic responses to the mac and cheese, macaroni and cheese ice cream. Yeah, yeah. it's now it's it's now available to see just what we thought about it. And Anna had the most concise feedback, <laughs> inappropriate. <laughs> uh, Jeff, foods in envelopes. I would have to think about that one. Um, Sorry, I know I put you on the spot with this very intense wow. question. Mm-hmm. Don't eat a lot of stuff out of envelopes. Uh, or like, sounds just, like you guys were getting really aggressive about the taco seasoning before. It's kind of a lame topic. No, or like, uh, the, like uh, if you're talking about the satisfaction of tearing open a package, uh, the hungover cup of coffee at a diner when you tear open this sugar and you're just like, <laughs> the cure's coming. The cure's coming. I was gonna go with uh, maybe like the ranch seasoning putting over that stuff over stuff. I yeah, like that. that's pretty yeah. good. Do yeah. you, so you use the powdered ranch seasoning? Yeah, yeah, for some, I don't know, dips and like peer on season some pretzels and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That stuff's so good. It's the best I can yes. do. No, hey, that's, I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, what's your final thought this week? So, David, when I was talking about the NBA championship oh. last um, last episode, yeah. you were very dismissive about <laughs> how much, how invested you would be in terms of where you would be when you watch this. Yeah. I believe your comment was, you know, I'll probably find out about the next day. All right. I, where, yep. uh, how soon did you find out about the Bucks winning the NBA championship? Immediately. Immediately. I was at a local establishment. I, it surprised myself. I surprised myself. Yeah. No, uh, it was a lot of fun. I've never seen a local sports team win a championship in, in an environment like that, in a bar, and it was just really cool. You yeah, know, it was I've, fun. I've seen like a, a ro- like a Rose Bowl, World Series. Like I've gone to bars to see other teams win, but it was just cool to see the environment where everyone was just going bananas. You yeah. know, liquid courage enhanced or not, <laughs> but it was yeah. a lot of fun. That was cool. And they crushed it in six. They did. And what it kind of made me think a little bit about in terms of how much we do care about stuff. Like, did you know the Olympics are starting? The Summer Olympics? Oh. Yeah. It kind of like it totally flew under. I wasn't really paying attention to it, but it also made me think like, do I really care? Oh, I do. I always pretend like I don't care going into it. And then I watch the hell out of it. Yeah. Is so it, what what do you watch from this? Like just what do you any of it. It's so yeah. weird. Like it, whatever is on, I'm just like I, if I accidentally turn to it, I'm like enraptured by okay. yeah. whatever it is. Actually, to that point about watching it live, 
Uh, we were all at a Greek restaurant once watching USA judo competition during the Olympics. Whoa. And it was some of the most fun we ever had. It was like we were just hanging out. I mean, we were a little bit of ouzo. But, uh, I mean, it's I like the Olympics because it's something that I I typically don't watch. Mm-hmm. But, like, even the prospect of watching, you know, uh, like Team USA against other teams. I don't know. I, I'm fascinated about it. I enjoy it. It's fun. I, I agree. So do you uh, do you have a favorite sport, though? Do I? Like, I mean, to, for the Olympic wise. Oh, I was like, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, do, I, I really don't. Um, for the Olympics, I am like about all of it. It's just going to be really fun to watch. The weirder, the better, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I never knew I could get into men's swimming until Michael Phelps was a monster. Yeah. It usually it takes like, like a, de- a developing story. Yeah. Like that was interesting mm-hmm. to watch him. And I'll admit, like the diving is mm-hmm. pretty intriguing. So cool. I'll watch USA basketball. Um, yeah, but it's kind of one of those things I forget about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think it's all streaming, so you can catch yeah. anything. Uh, my final thought. Uh, I have two of them this week, and one is an apology to loyal listener Pete, who I forgot to mention last week that two weeks ago when we were taking a vacation, we said we were going to take a week off, and we figured it. We figured out a way to make it work. We recorded. Uh, we recorded when we got back, put out an episode. Everyone was happy except Pete because we didn't acknowledge how we were going to have this bonus episode, even even though we were we said we were going to be. Oh, off. and then he missed it. No, he's oh, okay. he caught it. He like listened to it. And he's just like, hey, what's going on with this? Yeah. You said you were going to be. Nobody told off. me. Like, yeah. Like, well, my bad, man. And you're welcome. Pete, that's awesome. Thanks for thanks for your loyalty. And it was David's fault. And definitely David's fault. I mean, I'm in charge of the intro and there's a reason it like <laughs> differs by one word every week. <laughs> um, my other final thought was, have you guys ever received uh, a recalled notification over your phone? No. No. So I got my first one uh, when we were in the car, actually, uh, coming home. And it was a local number, so and it didn't give me the potential spam flag. So I listened to it. And it was just like, we have an important recall announcement from Kroger, which is the uh, pick and save that you were talking about. I'm like, oh, God, something I purchased is going to kill us. That's great. And then it goes on to read the recall verbatim. And it was just like Bright Farms, Mighty Romaine, eight ounce Bright Farms, Sunny Crunch Salad Mix, eight ounce Bright Farms, Nutri Greens, three ounce Bright Farms, Salad Blend, four ounce Bright Farms, Harvest Crunch, four ounce. And we're just sitting in the car freaking out because I'm like, first of all, what did I buy that was Bright Farms, Spring Mix, eight ounce Bright Farms, Lettuce, Bread Butter, four ounce Bright Farms, Sunny Crunch Salad, four ounce Bright Farms, Spring Mix, four ounce. And it was just... And then when I finally realized what it was, I'm like, oh, it's the lettuce. It's the lettuce that we just ate. We're all going to die. Like, uh, so we got to work on the notification process a little bit when it comes to recalls because it just like, it really gets you going like food you just purchased bad. All right. What is it? And then it just reads off the notification in the most weird, monotone, unintelligible way. Wait, so you got through all of that without making any mistakes. How how <laughs> yeah. how did you do that? And you struggle with an intro that you've read twenty five times. I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I just got in the it's zone. It's impressive. That was yeah. that was well done. I just got in the zone right there. How did they find you? I don't understand this. I think, Why do they have your number? No, how did they know? The only thing I got I think it's linked to is I like use a shopper card. Yeah. And so when I swipe my like customer ID, I bet they saw that I purchased this product in you know, my phone number is attached to the card. That is a huge benefit to the that shopper it, card. I didn't even know about that. No, no. Like, because that's I've always said that because being in this industry, we cover a lot of recalls. Mm-hmm. 
all of which I would never know about. Mm-hmm. Never know about if it wasn't right. for us working. And, and uh, this is the first time where I'm like, oh, okay, this is how they tell people. Great. Good to know. But yeah. it was, again. It's too late. But... It was too late. We already ate it. Nobody got sick. <laughs> Thank goodness. But it's like, it's only Listeria or whatever, uh, Salmonella and Listeria. See, and I was wondering why that was on, like, the script. Here. Like it was an accidental. I was like, uh, what did that come from? <laughs> you accidentally yeah. clicked paste. <laughs> no, that was... Uh, that was my brief interaction with the recall, and I just found it very hilarious. You crushed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, all right. Uh, anybody else have a final thought before I get out of here? Get Can't us out of here. All right. Well, before we get going, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share to the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can always make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. That'll make sure it winds up in your inbox first. All right, check us out next week. We're going to be going live again on Friday. And for Jeff and Anna, I'm David, and this has been the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Yep, we'll catch you next week. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com with email the podcast.